That's where we're at, Romans chapter number 1. If you'll join me there, we're going to look there at verses 18 through 20. But if you need an outline, get Brother Eric's attention as he makes his way down the middle aisle. We'd like for you to follow along. This is really a continuation of last week. And I know some couldn't be here because the weather and otherwise, but we had a great study already in these verses, specifically verse 19. And we'll just review it quickly and faintly uh, to kind of bring us all up to speed and get us on the same page of what Paul is trying to do in this case for Christ, in this case for the gospel, in that every man is guilty before Almighty God. And we saw the end of verse 20 there that they are without excuse. And that's really the culminating statement of these three verses. Look with me, verse number 18. We, we talked about in verse 17, the righteousness of God being revealed. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and who hold the truth in unrighteousness. We'll reference that statement again this evening in our study, but look at verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. And so we started our, our study with this simple statement that God's given revelation that leaves every person without excuse. End of verse 20, as we mentioned a moment ago. And we said this statement because uh, as part of that description, why? Because God is absolutely just. He never condemns unless condemnation is uh, deserved. And so uh, that's a, a bottom line understanding about the very character of God. Notice it, verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And so we took from verse 19 this simple truth. Number one, God has revealed himself to mankind. And what did it say? Within him. Within him. Verse number 19. So God has revealed himself within mankind. We made a couple statements, statements here. Just as no person can claim the excuse of ignorance, no person, therefore, can claim that the condemnation of guilt and worthiness of God's wrath against him is unjust. So a person can't look at God and say, it's, it's unjust for you to condemn me. It's unjust for you to say that I am without excuse. We noticed this statement, too. We followed it right up. Uh, to, to prove this reality that within man, that, that God has chosen to manifest and reveal himself. Here's a great truth. We, we finished this up with this last week. The Bible doesn't begin with an introduction or revelation of there being a God. In the very first verse of the Bible, we saw in the beginning God created. It makes an assumption or a presupposition, as we think of it in a court case, that the fact is already established, it's already been revealed in the hearts of men, whether they acknowledge it or not. And we looked at those two verses, Romans one twenty-eight, chapter 2, verse 15, that kind of concretely established this simple fact, that within man, that God is revealed. We want to develop it a little bit more this evening as we continue to do so. Now think of it this way. I want to give you two more evidences of this truth from the Scriptures. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Obviously, we'll keep our spot in Romans chapter 1. Acts chapter 17. We want to finish up this understanding of verse number 19 that God has within man revealed himself, made himself known to every person. Um, And then we'll get into the reality of looking at it from creation. 
that creation does very much the same thing. But let's look at Acts chapter 17. We're going to pick up in verse 22. It gives us context as what is transpiring here. Paul is talking to these great philosophers, secular philosophers here at Mars Hill. Notice it, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I have passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now notice this, verse 25. God that made the world in all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath in all things. Verse 26. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Verse 27. Notice this. That they should seek the Lord. If haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move, and we'll finish up with this statement, and have our being. So what does Paul do? Well, his presentation of God, Jehovah, to these men, he establishes first that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over people. He's sovereign over countries and even over different times. But even better than that, Paul says that God has revealed himself. That he is an approachable and a findable God. He is not a God as many, uh, the, uh, as many belief systems say is a God that is untouchable. A God that you don't want to meet because uh, he is nothing but anger and wrath. No, no, no. This God is approachable. This God of heaven and earth, the creator of all, is findable. And didn't you like that description? He is not far from anyone. And aren't you thankful tonight that God is not far from anyone? That the, he has revealed himself so that anybody who searches can find him. We'll see that tonight and we'll see that explained, uh, through and through. Now, turn with me. We're going to look at another passage. John chapter one. Turn with me there. John chapter one. We're going to look down at verse number nine. John chapter one and verse number nine. Quite a statement we find by Paul in Acts chapter 17 to those men on Mars Hill. Now we come to John in the revelation that he has given us. This is quite interesting. It. Uh, John chapter 1 in verse 9. Notice it. Notice the statement. That was the true light. What are we speaking of? Well, we know it goes all the way to the beginning. In the beginning, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we understand, and he goes on, he's talking of Jesus Christ. It's a capital L light. We understand that in Scripture. And so it's speaking of Jesus Christ. Now notice it. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now, this is not teaching some universal salvation that sadly has crept up into some more liberal seminaries and colleges where they believe that everybody is just a brother and sister and we're all children of God, even if you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Is that what John's saying? Absolutely not. We don't believe in universal salvation that everyone's just naturally saved because they're human. So what is he teaching about here? What's he saying? Well, it's not the saving knowledge of God that comes through faith, but rather this is a knowledge and revelation that is within every man. 
that God has, in, in essence, lit every man with, as we have called it, maybe a God-sized vacuum. That there's something within every man that makes them understand, wait a minute, there's a God. There's a supreme being. There, there's someone out there that, that, that is in control of all things, and as we'll see, describe his eternal power and his Godhead. Now notice it, you say... Um, how does this all tie together? Well, during World War II, you know this. Now think about it with me. That the statement is this that became very prevalent. There are no blank in foxholes. Atheist. Right. Yeah. There are no atheists in foxholes. What is that establishing? What does that statement mean? Well, it literally is pointing this out. That you can take the most hardened sinner, you can take the most uh, hardened skeptic or atheist, you, you can take the person who would have nothing to do with God, and you put them in a situation in which they are threatened by imminent danger, they are threatened by the possibility of threat, of fatality, and what do they find themselves doing? Whether purposely or inadvertently, who are they calling out to? God. Hmm, that's quite interesting, isn't it? It seems to indicate that within all of us, there's an understanding. There's got to be a supreme being. There's got to be someone out there. There's got to be somebody behind all of this. It's pretty indicative of that simple fact. Back in Acts chapter 17, verse 27, there was that indication there of Paul speaking of that God-shaped vacuum in every person. That he has created man. God has created man with the intuition to recognize God's existence, at least, now get this, at least until education and training have educated it out of him, have taken it away, have stolen it. That, that there's a seed of revelation in man just from what's within, how he was created, and from creation, as we'll see here in a few moments. And yet, what happens? The weeds grow up and suffocate the seed. And so it is with the understanding that there is a God, that uh, we have that vacuum within each of us, this understanding that there is a God out there. Furthermore, it's obvious to each of us, and we would put it this way, you see it there in your outline, that every person, I understand this, this is derived from the reality and the existence of a God, every person has a uh, moral nature. That is, what do we mean by a moral nature? Well, they have the ability to differentiate between right and wrong. See, we, we couldn't argue that. We see that among, if you've done any studies of mankind, if you've been in any sociology classes, you would have to uh, concur with me, come to the conclusion that man, above all other creatures, has a moral nature. That he's been created as the one part of creation that was created in the very image of God. You and I have a moral nature. See, even the most depraved sinner and the most hardened atheist are no different in this respect from the holiest of believers. People have a, have a moral nature. Now, that is not to say that the standards or the law lines drawn of rightness and wrongness of specific actions don't differ widely among people, but simply that there is a difference between right and wrong in every man's heart. Let me illustrate it. 
Okay, back in, um, back in the day, we always like to say that to describe our own day. Back in the day, you remember what would happen if someone, now, now forgive me, but let, let's put it in context here so we, we can grasp it. If a child molester was sentenced and thrown in prison, back in the day, that kind of person had a very low percentage of surviving prison. You know what's interesting about that? Wait a minute. They're among murderers and thieves and, and those. But guess what? They would look on someone who molested someone. And it was like, whoa, 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 you crossed the line. Now, wait a minute. Isn't murder wrong? Well, yeah, I murdered, but that's not nearly as bad. Now, now think about that because we do this all the time in different things, don't we? And so every man has a moral nature. We know that there's a right and a wrong, but we obviously draw that line at different places, don't we? We have now this, this, and, and forgive me, I'm not getting political, nor am I going to, but l- let me give for sake of illustration. We had children today, and I do use the term children, walk out of school to protest about guns and everything else. Now let me ask you, fine, okay, and we're not going to have that argument, but let me ask you this. Wouldn't you have much rather see all these kids walk out of school because of abortions? Where's that? I'm not saying what you're doing today is wrong. I'm not going to argue that. What I am saying is, isn't that funny where we draw the line sometimes? But here's the point. Everybody has a sense of right and wrong. We have a moral nature. God has given. We have been created with that. And yes, we draw that line in different places, the line of rightness and wrongness. And and we could use a million other illustrations to demonstrate it. But here's the point. No other creature does that. No other creation of God. Not the animal kingdom or anything like that. You don't see foxes holding court. Holding a gavel. Oh, sorry, you were in the hen house one too many times. That doesn't happen. The foxes don't do that, okay? Some of you, if you saw that, make believe, okay? That was cartoons, all right? It doesn't happen. So it sets you and I apart. Why? Why do we of all creation have this written code this moral nature within us well i'll tell you because you and i were created in the very image of god and as such it points as skewed as the system is the reality is that in every person every part of mankind has a moral nature that screams that there is a god a moral god a god of eternal power and godhead Look, hopefully back in Romans by now, but look at Romans chapter 2. Notice verse 14. Man, what a clinching statement by Paul to challenge you and I. Wait a minute. It's within us. Notice it. Romans chapter 2. We read verse 15 last week. Let's jump back to verse 14. Notice it. What did I say? They have a moral nature. Now notice this. Verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by, what's the next word? Hmm. They do naturally. They do by nature. The things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves. I was talking to somebody on the phone today. They were speaking of a boss in their work. And they're like, Listen, hey, if you, would, if you knew this guy, you would think that he is saved. But he's not. He lives, man, his logic is dead on. He knows right and wrong. He knows morality. He knows all these things, but he's not saved. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? 
We, you and I meet, we've met many people who are good people. They are morally, uh, they, uh, they morally walk well and right and they, they don't break the law. They don't, they're, they're not unkind. That's fantastic and that's good. But you know what that reflects? A creator who is put within man. He has revealed even himself within man that you and I even have an inclination of a moral nature bespeaks the fact that we were created by a moral God. He's created you and I as such, and it's a great truth. Uh, It is a self-manifestation of God within uh, the one and only part of creation that was created as image, which condemns mankind, which renders you and I without excuse. It is this inborn truth that mankind, since the beginning of earthly time, what did verse 18 say? Has held in unrighteousness. So this is within us, it, it, it testifies within us that there is a God, but we've held it in unrighteousness. I like to put it this way. You see it there on your, um, I'm sorry, that should have been right and wrong. If I, I didn't get that to you, I said it, but I didn't push the button, all right? So notice the next statement here in the outline. A person is not exonerated from guilt or just punishment simply because a person does not handle the truth or revelation well. In other words, we have the wrong response. So it doesn't make, and we've spoken about this before. We've given an illustration. If a parent says, go clean your room, and, and the child, the parent checks up on the child sometime later, and the room isn't clean, why didn't you clean your room? Oh, I didn't understand you. Well, I didn't hear you. Okay? You learn very quickly that that did not work, okay, as a child, that those excuses. You can't give the excuse, well, I didn't handle it well, so I guess it makes it null and void. Can I tell you, my friend, the Bible says they are without excuse. Because what? Verse 19, because that which may be known of God is what? Manifest in them. Huh. You know, this is not new to mankind. This has been mankind's argument from the moment Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. God gave them a revelation. They handled it wrong, the wrong response, responding inappropriately, and they suffered the consequences. Move ahead. Israel, as a nation, was getting given corporate revelation from God, and yet they failed to follow it. They suffered the consequences. Move ahead a little bit longer. In the New Testament, the, Israel, the nation of Israel was given the revelation of the Messiah. And what did they do? They rejected it. They chose not to heed it, not to embrace and accept Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And so they reaped the consequences of it as a nation. So revelation is given, and we are without excuse. And so it goes to every man the same thing. Nothing, nothing can be offered to exonerate one from the condemnation and the wrath of God. It should be easy for us to grasp that as God revealed himself inwardly in every man, outwardly within creation, man is without excuse. No remote village or tribe out in the middle of nowhere with with no Bible or missionary. It doesn't fly in the face of clear revelation of God to all of mankind. Where? Within them. Within them. Hmm. Now, (coughs) excuse me, not only is it within man, but I want you to notice there in your outline, it's also outside of every person. That is, within creation. 
And we're going to see in this next verse, what is it that God reveals? Both within man and without, as we'll put it here. You see that on your outline. Number two, God has revealed himself to mankind without them. It doesn't mean apart from them. It means the definition of without. Sometimes the second definition of dictionary literally means um, be outside of them. So uh, God reveals himself not only within man, but now also outside of mankind. So within man, there's a testimony of God. Now this is what's neat. God said, okay, I'm going to reveal myself within man, among you, in you, and through that moral nature, through this vacuum that's there, I'm going to reveal myself. But you know what God said in his mind? He said this, that's not going to suffice. That's not the only way that I'm going to reveal myself. So he created all around us creation in such a way that it declares not just that there is a God, but it also informs our understanding of who God is. It bespeaks the very character of God. We can look at creation and see its orderliness and structure, and we'll see much more of that. All of creation is a witness of God that is inescapable. Well, what if I'm in China? Guess what? Creation's there. Hey, I know. I'll go to Antarctica. Good news. Creation's there. It is inescapable. It is always around us. We are permeated, or it permeates this world. We are immersed within it. It constantly surrounds us, and it affects us always and everywhere. You know, it's interesting. Revelation chapter 14, I forget the verse, but there an angel was given the responsibility, and I like this terminology. He was given the responsibility to preach the everlasting gospel. Don't you like that? The everlasting gospel. Here's what he did. When he did, he went to persuade mankind that all the world, and this is the terminology, let me read it verbatim. This was what he was trying to affect. He called the people of earth to do this, quote, worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. Calling them to worship the creator. You'll slowly see, and or quickly see, I should say, in verses 19 and 20 here, what's Paul doing? Well, Paul's saying that what is within us points to God, and what is outside of us points to God. You know it well, David said it, uh, Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, the heavens declare what? The glory of the Lord, the glory of God, and the firmament, firmament showeth his handiwork. Proclaims it, describes it, many more psalms. The fact that, uh, do, do the same thing, excuse me, the fact that there is a God, that he is powerful and the head of all things, is the foundational truth of the gospel. One that must first, uh, one that must first be admitted by a person, and frankly, that he now, God, has the rights to me because I am his creation. He is all-powerful, and I am not. So as I look at creation, I, I began to realize, now listen, this is really the first step of salvation. This is the first process. Uh, for instance, many of us have gone to a, a house, we've knocked on the door, and we've asked somebody, hey, if you were to die today, where would you spend eternity? How many of you, in response to that, and just think about it, you don't necessarily have to raise your hand, but how many of you, in response to that, someone has said this, well, 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 I believe in God. Now, that is fantastic. You ought to believe in God. Why? Because God revealed it within us. God revealed it in creation around us. And the gospel must start with identifying and acknowledging what? Number one, there is a God. So it must start there. So that's not bad, But that's not saving faith. 
That's a good start. Just the other day, I was witnessing to someone last week, and, and that's exactly what they said to me. They said, hey, well, I, I, I've always believed in God. God, because it was written within us from the moment you were, took your first breath. God revealed himself, and he's revealing himself. As we look all the way around, it is the first step. What did Paul say? Remember, he said, listen, hey, the one that you worship ignorantly, him I declare unto you. And how did he start the next statement? Here were, here, here were unsaved people, people who had never heard of Jesus Christ, possibly. And where does Paul start? He says this, let me declare him unto you. Remember the next statement? God that made the world and all things therein. You know what he's doing? Here's a key to what we do whenever we're witnessing to somebody. We take them from the known to the unknown. He's saying this, hey, hey, look all around you. We see things created. There's creation all around us and even inside of you. You know you're different than that ant and, and that snake and that lizard. You're different, that donkey. You're different than that. And so he's declaring unto them, here is the God who created everything. Let me tell you about him. And you know what that assumes is that they understood that there was a God. They look around at creation and wow, this, this is amazing. The intricacies, the, the delicate nature and balance that we find in most of creation, this just doesn't happen. There is something to this. And boy, there is Paul saying, hey, let me introduce you to who's behind it all. That one who is gonna, who's ready to fill that vacuum in your life and in mine. So, now let's reason together, friend. So, if Satan's main objective is to thwart God's plan for everything because Satan wants to be God, then what is he going to do? Well, can I tell you this? The good news is, and probably the bad news at the same time, all you and I have to do is look at the media and politics today to clue us in on that. Hey, when a politician wants someone else's spot in government, what do they do? It's an all-out assault, isn't it? Let's attack them. It's a smear campaign. Let's make them look bad. Let's, if it's lying about them, we'll lie about them. And I like this statement. Let's throw out there some fake news. And so we're trying to tear this guy down and rip him apart. And in fact, the very things that that candidate say, hey, I stand for this and, and I've accomplished this and, and I did this. The other candidate tears it all apart, right? He says he created this many jobs. He didn't create. He actually took jobs. He says he's done this. He didn't do that. He did this and this. Isn't that what happens? We get the flyers in the mail that say the very same thing. Now listen to me. Can I tell you this? The best politician out there is Satan. Do you realize that Satan has been doing a smear campaign from the existence of you and, and I in this world? Mankind? Do you realize who the king of fake news is? Satan. He's thrown it all out there. He's an all-out assault on God. Now think about it with me. Does it? We know this. What has he done? Well, he's taken the very thing that ought to scream of God, ought to communicate to every person that there is a God, and he runs it through the mud. He casts doubt and suspicion on it, even to the degree that 
denying that it's even true. He's tried to take everything that God says and get people to believe exactly the opposite. To doubt all that the Bible says. To even ignore and deny the existence of God. One of my favorite creationists uh, is Henry Morris. One of my favorite books is entitled Long War Against God. Boy, if you want a fun read, get it. And you'll need a dictionary too. But anyway, um, it's one of those thick books. It's a great book though. And uh, it, this is what he said. I love this statement by Henry Morris. He said this, The extremely powerful testimony of God in his creation has been corrupted and undermined and almost obliterated in the minds of men. How? By the evolutionary reinterpretation of that testimony. You say, Pastor Henry, what does that mean? Simply means this. Satan has used evolution to erase the testimony of God known as creation. He has said, aha, I know. If creation speaks of God, then I'll come up with another means. Because I want to erase any thought, any inclination of God. Because if creation is going to draw men to God, then I've got to stop it. And so Satan has done his best to do that. So what is evolution? Let's identify it for what it is. It's nothing more than the greatest method used by Satan to erase one of the two testimonies that God has given every person that they are exposed to during their life. What's this passage say? Well, within them is a testimony. So Satan does what he can to erase you and I thinking that there is a God. And then creation reveals it. And so what does Satan do? Well, if we can explain all the things around us and sucker people into believing it, then we can erase that testimony of God too. Boy, (laughs) thankfully, Satan has not been successful in totally removing the evidence. Because when you and I look around creation and the evidence of the invisible, isn't that how Paul said it here? For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood, notice this, by the things that are made. So the visible reveals the invisible. It informs us, it reveals God, the invisible, to us through the visible creation. And so as such, the evidence of the invisible is still visible. It's still there. I like what... um, I like what Henry Moore said here too. He said this, Only an omnipotent, omniscient, personal God could possibly account in any rational sense for the evidences of limitless power in the processes of the universe or the infinite complexities of design. In the organized systems of the universe, especially the living systems of life, or the attributes of personality in human beings, that we have a self-consciousness, that we have a will, an emotion, abstract reasoning. Listen, those things cannot happen by chance, is what Henry Morris is saying. There has to be someone with limitless power in amazing complexities of design, intelligence behind it. It is a simple cause and effect reasoning. See, here's the neat thing. You know what God has given you and I? He's given us the ability to reason. Now, I understand sometimes one or two things happen. We lose that ability because we don't use it. Or we choose not to use it. Because God gives us logic. God gives us the ability. He says, come now, let us reason together. Don't let anybody ever tell you that Christianity is a mindless religion. 
Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Come now and let us reason. You and I are to reason. We're supposed to use logic. We're supposed to use good reasoning. And the fact is this. God has created you and I like no other part of his creation in our ability to use logic and reasoning. And so this is a basic cause and effect reasoning or logic. And so we look around us, we see the effect, and that must lead us always back to the cause, which is God. It's logical and clear. It prods any person that can take in the amazing aspects of creation to reason back to the Creator. Oh, but Satan doesn't like that, so what has he done? Well, Satan has convinced supposedly wise men and women that life happened by chance. That a big explosion of nothing created something. That from nothing came intricate and complex life. What's the recipe? We'll just add a little time and add a little matter, add a little bit more time and a little bit more matter, and poof, we have life. That's good reasoning. Huh. That is what the so-called wisest among us say, but the Bible describes it entirely different. Look down in chapter number 1, verse 22. Here's what the Bible says. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Hmm. Hmm. Bible says that this truth, that there is a God, that He created life, is clearly seen. You see it there in verse 20? So let's go back to that passage. It's clearly seen. Now that terminology is quite interesting. It's not speaking of just seeing with one's eyes, but it literally means, notice this, to perceive, to comprehend, to understand. In fact, Paul does a good job in this very verse to explain what that word means. Notice verse 20 again. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Now notice this. Being understood. So he tells us this word clearly seen. It doesn't mean we're just looking at it with our eyes, but we can literally perceive it, understand it, conceive what it means. He says, being understood by the things that are made. It's another word for made, created. By the things that are created. By creation itself. Forgive me, I know I've thrown a couple quotes at you, but this is one of my all-time favorite quotes. It comes from a book in 1985. It was written by an Australian molecular genesis. woo Okay? Uh, and he studies molecular makeup of human genes, the intricate, minutest details of life. I love this first sentence. He says this. It is the sheer universality of perfection. The fact that everywhere we look, to whatever depth we look, we find an elegance and an ingenuity of an absolute transcendent quality, which so mitigates against the idea of chance. Now, friend, that is a beautiful sentence. I'll explain it to you later, okay? It took me for a couple hours. No. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, you just look at it. And I love that first term, the universality of perfection. You look at it. In other words, for instance, okay, forgive me. I just thought of this illustration. It may not work, okay? This, I don't know if you call it a doily. That's what I would call it. So I'm going to call it a doily, okay? You look at that and you, look, you say, wow. Well, that just happened by chance. No, look at it. I mean, look at it. It's, it's symmetrical. I like things that are symmetrical. 
We could fold it in half, and it's almost perfect, and it lines up. I mean, that's fantastic. You could look individually, and you see how, now I'm going to show my ignorance, you know, the threads and all the, the patterns are, are, are symmetrical. You could look at it in-depthly. That's literally what the statement is saying. In-depthly, and what you find is a universality of perfection. That all of it bespeaks an amazing creator behind it. That somebody took the time and energy, and I hope it wasn't a machine, uh, that made this. I, I've known ladies who do this kind of thing, but this is probably machine made. Anyway, okay. So it bespeaks what? Well, something, but somebody's behind it. Somebody did a great job. I mean, you look at the statement. And so, it, it, I like this. It's transcendent quality. What does that mean? It flows throughout. It transcends the whole piece. In other words, if we could, now this is made by man, so that's probably has flaws. The creation around us has flaws because of sin, and starting with the, the Garden of Eden, we understand that. But God's creation is flawless. When he stepped back, he said it is good. And he said it is very good after he created man. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Now listen to me. We step back and we see and say, wow. That perfection goes all the way through it. There is no way, and it would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? Oh, this just happened by chance. I mean, come on. We're intelligent enough that we wouldn't look at this and say, oh, that just happened by chance. But we look at a world that is millions of times more intricate and held in a fantastic balance. And there are human beings that will say, oh, no, 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 no. That, that happened by chance. That just came together. He goes on in his statement, notice it, and I don't think it gets too much <coughs> too deep, but he says this, it is really, is it, excuse me, he asked a question, is it really credible that random processes could have constructed a reality, the smallest element of which, which would be a functional protein or a gene, is complex beyond our own creative capacities, a reality which is the very antithesis, the opposite, contrary to chance which excel in every sense anything produced by the intelligence of man. We as a, as a race, we as mankind are still looking at things of creation like we have no idea how that happened. We have no idea how to redesign that. We can do all we can to try to create li- life in a laboratory and we have failed. We can't do what God has done in creation. He goes on and he makes this final statement. And he says this, Alongside the level of ingenuity and complexity exhibited by the molecular machinery of life, even our most advanced artifacts, productions, our produce, appears clumsy. You can't touch it. We look at all of creation and we literally cannot touch what we see. We cannot produce anything that compares. Now listen to me. Then we come to this conclusion. Here's the conclusion drawn from creation. So it is obvious that there is a creator, one who is a supreme being, whose intelligence and power are beyond our capabilities to fully understand it, and yet his existence is undeniable in the face of the evidence where within me and without of me. Inside and outside. The evidence is scream of God. And what is mankind's response? Oh, no, 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 no. There is no God. Let's just say it happened by chance. In fact, we're going to say it happened by chance. And it happened. Now listen, it happened in some way that we can't reproduce. 
It happened in some way we really can't explain it. It happened in some way that none of us have ever witnessed. And it happened in some way that we can't find any tangible, perceivable evidence that it happened. Huh. That sounds pretty strong, doesn't it? And by the way, we are told you are a fool and ignorant if you question it. It's funny, every scientist that that comes out believing in creation, refusing to believe in evolution, they are labeled foolish, ignorant. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? You, You think that started with mankind? No way. You know who the author of evolution is? Satan. It's a smear campaign. It's fake news. And mankind ought to step back and see, wait a second. You want me to believe that these things happen by chance and you can't reproduce it, you can't explain it, you didn't witness it, and you can't even tell me that there's any tangible, practical evidence that it really happened. What are we still looking for? The missing link. You know what the missing link is? The thing that would connect anything and everything. And you go back far enough in the explanation of evolution and they can't tell you where matter originated. Huh. Why? What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. Because creation is one of the ways that God chose to manifest himself to every single person. Coupled together with the testimony within us, you and I, how does the Bible say? We are without excuse. Forgive me, but I'd love for us to be able to develop these next two things, the two things that God reveals to us and how it all ties together and how that begins the journey of finding God for a person. Because God has promised, if you seek me, you will find me. So it starts with an inclination, an intuition inside of me, a moral nature that says, wow, There must be a God. And then I look outside of me and I see all of creation. And it confirms that there has to be a supreme being of eternal power and of Godhead. And He's got to be there. And boy, I cry out to Him in a foxhole or somewhere else. And can I tell you, my friend, when we cry out to God, He answers us. He answers us. May the God of all creation be praised because in His love and graciousness, He chose to reveal Himself to us. So that we, in turn, through Jesus Christ, could have a personal relationship with Him. Can I tell you, my friend, as a creation of God, you and I are blessed. We have it good. Brother Cliff, you'll bring those prayer requests. We'll dive into the rest of verse number 20.